Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On the program, the countdown to a federal budget. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh says don't expect an election out of it. He won't bring the Trudeau government down over the budget no matter what's in it. Two economists weigh in on what kind of an economic roadmap they're hoping for, what the priorities should be, and how much the government can predict faced with a third wave of the pandemic. All that on a day when the Ford government in Ontario tables its second COVID-19 budget. We'll look at the highlights of a big spending budget from a Conservative government. But we start with the speculation, the expectations, and the political maneuvering surrounding the first federal budget in two years, to be tabled by Finance Minister Christian Freeland on April 19th. In the minority parliament, it will take the support of at least one opposition party for the budget, a confidence matter, or else we'll be in an election. Joining me now is the leader of the federal NDP, Jagmeet Singh. Mr. Singh, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. Okay, one month ago, it was a Wednesday. It was after a caucus meeting, just like a Wednesday today. Uh, one month ago, you said that you, were, you strongly suspected that the Trudeau government was hoping to trigger an election and possibly on a confidence vote like the budget. You said, quote, we are not going to trigger an election. That means any confidence vote, we will keep the government going, unquote. So today, one month later, where do you stand on this upcoming budget? Will you vote for it? Same position as before. Our goal is to make Parliament work for people. We were sent here with a minority government, and we are going to work to make sure Parliament delivers the help that people need. People need the vaccine right now, and we are going to continue to force and push this government to deliver the priority of getting everyone vaccinated. That is the number one goal. So does that mean you're giving carte blanche to the government? I mean, some people said a month ago when you said that, that you've sort of given up any, uh, in political terms, negotiating position. Well, it's only negotiating if the other party doesn't want an election. If they want an election, there's really not much negotiating. So what we're up against is a lot of clear signals from the Liberal government, from Justin Trudeau, that he wants an election. And we are not going to give him one where he can blame the opposition. We're going to use our position, as we have throughout this pandemic, to fight for the help people need. We were able to double the amount of support to families through CERB. We were able to get help to students. We were able to bring in paid sick leave. These are all things new Democrats fought for and won for people that happened outside of budgets, didn't happen in uh, confidence votes, but were hap they happened throughout Parliament. That's what we're going to focus on doing. So there is nothing in this budget that could make you not vote for the budget? Well, again, it's a matter of priorities. And for us, we don't think this is the time to go to an election. When we've got vaccines on the horizon and people want to get vaccinated, when we've got variants that have... Uh, upset the election in Newfoundland and Labrador three times. We believe the right thing to do right now is to get everyone vaccinated and not to have an election. So we are not going to trigger an election. We are going to fight for Canadians and deliver the help that they need. Is there a political risk to that? I mean, could some of your constituencies say you're basically giving the, giving the carte blanche to the government? Well, not at all. Again, uh, if a government wants to work with us and deliver the help that Canadians need. We've been here from the beginning to do that. But if the government's looking for an excuse to go to an election, they're not looking to negotiate. They're looking for an election. And we're not going to give them one in a time when Canadians are worried. I, I was thinking about my parents. And if my parents get a vaccine, how much I would breathe a sigh of relief. And I know many, many Canadians feel the same way. They want to know that their vulnerable loved ones are safe and are vaccinated. That's what Canadians are worried about right now. 
Okay, there was another interesting question put to you at a press conference this morning, or at a scrum this morning, and that is, uh, if there is this issue, and as we know, of the pandemic and of health concerns, um, in terms of purely health COVID concerns, when will be a, uh, a safe time in terms of public health to have an election? Well, the, the two major things we have to look at, public health advice when it comes to making decisions, and secondly, I think the easiest and obvious answer is when everyone's vaccinated. At least at that point, we know that people will be protected from the most severe symptoms of an infection. So that's important. Everyone being vaccinated, following public health guidelines should be the, the two ways we base our decision making. And really, even after that's achieved, I'm still going to find ways to make Parliament work because that's what people sent me here to do. I'm not trying to find the calculus around when is it best for me to go to an election. I'm trying to get help to people in their, in their time of need, and that will always be my goal. Okay, I want to ask you about another issue which is big today, and that is reports from both the European Union as well as from India. Uh, once again, questions being raised about the reliability of our source of vaccines. The EU is again talking about being vigilant uh, in terms of assessing exports of its vaccines. We get vaccines from Europe, uh, from Belgium and from Spain, um, but especially the AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, there's also questions about India and India, which is reportedly saying it's concerned about its domestic need for vaccines and it's reevaluating some of its exports. How concerned should Canadians be about vaccine supply for Canada? Sadly, very concerned. And this is something that is very much a liberal government failure. And I take no pleasure in saying that. In fact, I'm sad to say this. I want the vaccine to su succeed. I want Canadians to trust in the vaccine and I want them to take it. But the reality is, because the Liberal government failed to secure the local domestic capacity to produce vaccines, we will always be at the whims and uncertainty of international logistics and production. That's why we called early in this pandemic for the capacity to not just make the vaccine and critical drugs locally, but also to own that the way we once did with Connaught Laboratories. We need a publicly owned, Canadians owned, uh, capacity to produce vaccines. So we're never again in this position. And even still, we need to see the Liberal government move towards making sure we've got that capacity locally. Now, Mary Ng, the uh, Minister of Small Business and uh, International Trade, has said that all of her counterparts in the European Union, at the European Commission, uh, the people she had spoken with the last time this came up from Europe, have assured her that Canada will not be affected, that the concern is mainly with Britain, with export quotas to Britain in terms of European vaccines. You're not a suage, you're not comforted by those assurances, which proved true the last time around. Well, really, what's, what's going on now is this ongoing uncertainty that, that really erodes public trust, and that's why I'm worried about it. Anytime there's delays, anytime that the vaccine doesn't come on time, it means more Canadians start to doubt whether this is actually going to work. And any public trust that is eroded means less people might take the vaccine. Uh, and that, to me, is a big problem. And that's why I have to continue to focus on how important it is for us to be able to produce this vaccine here in Canada. We're one of the world's largest economies. There is no justi justification or excuse why the Liberal go government couldn't make the right decisions to make sure we had that capacity in the first place, right at the beginning of this pandemic when we knew it was a problem, steps should have been taken then. The UK did something very similar, and now they have local capacity. They weren't in the same position. Uh, they were in the same position as Canada, didn't have that local capacity. They ramped up. Canada needs to make this a priority. Okay, well, listen, I want to thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you, sir.
Joining me now to look at what we might expect in the April 19th budget to be delivered by Finance Minister Christian Freeland are two economists and avid federal budget watchers. Ian Lee is an associate professor at the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University, and D.T. Cochran is an economist with the Canadian Centre for Tax Fairness. Both of you, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's start with, uh, in a nutshell, if there's one thing, we're all waiting for this budget, but if there's one thing that you think that Canadians need to see the most, the most important thing that you hope to see in this budget, what would it be? Ian Lee. Um, we have spent uh, enormous, unprecedented amounts on income support uh, for a year now, which was necessary. And I hope that the government uh, calls, uh, uh, announces a shift away from income support to investment in the economy, uh, to get the economy going again, to get the economy moving again. Gargantuan amounts have been paid to income support. That was a good thing. Now we've got to focus on revving up and getting the economy returning to growth because the most efficient and successful anti-poverty strategy is ensuring high and full employment. Okay, DT Cochran, if there's one thing that you're looking for the most keenly, what would it be? Uh, I'm, I'm going to somewhat disagree with Dr. Lee and say I want to see the maintenance of income support continued until we see the economy is in a situation where people have jobs to get back to. If we cut those supports too soon, then we risk uh, allowing people to fall through the cracks. Okay, I want to, uh, both of those are related to the level of debt that this government and this, this, in this situation has incurred. Uh, we're looking at around $400 billion. Uh, at the beginning of this Liberal government, there was a commitment to get out of deficit in three years. That then changed, as we know, over the years to a commitment to a fiscal anchor of reducing the deficit as a proportion of the economy, the GDP. In her economic update last fall, Minister Freeland talked about establishing a fiscal guardrail. Do either of you know what that would be, have any suspicions of what that might be, or will we see any target for reducing debt and deficit? Uh, Ian Lee. Um. This may be, uh, the finance minister may be, you know, engaging in a sort of a bit of a wordplay. Um, I think, that I'm hoping uh, that they will introduce some kind of a fiscal anchor, fiscal guardrail. This is not a lockbox. It is a tool designed to guide uh, federal spending. To your question, what will it look like? It could be debt to GDP, or it could be what former Governor David Dodge has suggested is uh, interest as a percentage of, of uh, GDP. In other words, uh, a, a somewhat more uh, flexible measure. But there's gotta be some kind of a reference point that says, okay, we can go this far, but we really can't go beyond that without causing uh, increasing the, the risk to damage to the economy. Okay, DT Cochran, even people who are calling for maintaining or even increasing support payments, are, are some of them nervous about the extent of, of the debt that we've run up and the deficits that we've run up. Do you think we'll see anything? And if so, what do you think it might be? I, I think we probably will see something, but I also think it's it's unnecessary. Um, much of the, the discourse in this country about deficits and debt is based on a misunderstanding, um, uh, a misunderstanding of the federal government as being like a household. And so having to um, balance its expenditures and its revenues. But I don't know about you, but I don't have my own bank. 
The federal government has its own bank. It can create all the financial resources that it needs. Um, and so the, the federal debt does not mean uh, the same thing for the government that it means for us. Does that mean it can spend all that it wants? No, the concern becomes what will all of the money that it spends into existence do once it's in the economy? So the, the concern will become, do we start having inflation that looks like it's going to feed upon itself uh, and push us into a, a, an inflationary cycle? We are a long way away from that. And so imposing some sort of artificial limits uh, just unnecessarily handcuffs the government from providing the kind of financial resources that it needs in order to assist with this economic recovery. Okay, uh, Ian Lee, you mentioned that in your opinion you'd like to see you'd like to see uh, the government moving away from support payments. The parliamentary budget officer, Yves Giroud, released a forecast in which he sees that happening. He says the government's support to individuals, which was 122 billion dollars in this first year of the pandemic, he sees it dropping by about 86 percent. Do you think that is a, a given or we are facing a third wave of the pandemic? Um, it, we're really making guesstimates about the future. I'm not as pessimistic about a third wave. Um, we've had a huge influx of the vaccines and I, I believe, and I think many do, that the, the higher the number of people, of Canadians vaccinated, the lower and lower the probability of a third wave. Okay. Um, in fact, that's what's holding us back from spending and going out because we're socially isolating. Millions of us, I'm one of them, uh, don't go out and aren't spending anywhere near as much money. And so to get the economy going, we have to get people vaccinated uh, to get it going. But Martin, if I could just respond sure. very quickly to DT, because he made a couple of points that I would agree in an ideal theoretical world. He said the government of Canada is not a household. It has a printing press. It does. The central bank and if the government of canada was lived all by itself and didn't have any other obligations that would be true the problem is it isn't true we know that the 10 provincial governments are in very serious uh, situation the parliamentary budget office has said that they are unsustainable in the medium term. We know that the bond markets will not buy the bonds of Newfoundland and Labrador, the government of Newfoundland and Labrador. And we know that if a province literally cannot pay its bills for its teachers and its nurses and so forth, that they will be going to the government of Canada and the government of Canada will backstop them. And that's not to mention all the universities in this country, the municipalities who have already said they're deeply indebted, and none of these institutions have a printing press called the Bank of Canada. No university in Canada has a printing press. No provincial government has a central bank. Uh, no hospitals, no okay. municipalities. Okay. And so problem's not the federal government. The problem is the liabilities that they are implicitly responsible for amongst all those institutions in Canada with huge deficits that do not have a printing press. Okay, DT Cochran, my, my, my question, and it's a bit of the same question I asked to Ian Lee, and that is one of the reasons the government gave for not producing a, def, a, a budget was that conditions can change. We are facing, at least the health experts tell us, a third wave, uh, even with the vaccines arriving. Uh, do you think a lot of the assumptions are are, or is this budget process a very risky one, given the context that we're in? 
No, there was no excuse for the government not to produce a budget. I get that we were in a pandemic. It was this incredibly uncertain situation. So they could have produced a budget that spelled out the high degree of uncertainty, but could have also reassured Canadians that we are here, we're equipped, we're going to do what we need to, to support you, to support our communities, to support businesses as we deal with this pandemic, while recognizing that things can go in a lot of different directions. And unfortunately, we're still in this situation of uncertainty. I'm an economist. We tend to have huge egos, but I won't pretend to be an epidemiologist. I don't know exactly where um, this third wave might be going. We have new variants. Yes, I'm excited and hopeful for the vaccine, but there's still incredible uncertainty. And uncertainty for business means investment is unlikely to quickly follow even when we feel we're out of the pandemic. So as long as that is the situation and we don't have an accurate map of what our economy actually looks like at the moment, we need the federal government to be in there backstopping all Canadians with the financial supports that they need, which will then flow through the rest of the economy to make sure that it that it doesn't seize up. Okay, on that note, uh, I, something tells me we'll be talking about this again, and we will watch with interest as we await uh, April 19th. Thank you, both of you, uh, D.T. Cochran and Ian Lee. Thanks for joining us. Thank you My very pleasure. much for having me. Thank you. The Conservative government of Doug Ford tabled its second Ontario budget of the pandemic today. Finance Minister Peter Bethlen-Falvey announced that this year's provincial deficit will come in at $33.1 billion. Now that's down from last year's record deficit, but the Conservative government says Ontario won't see the books balanced until the end of the decade. The Finance Minister says his government will continue to spend what it must to keep Ontarians safe during the pandemic. Uh, This level of debt, as I've said, is not sustainable in the long term. Uh, With lower interest rates right now, it's uh, it's very uh, manageable. And uh, the best thing we can do is get everyone vaccinated in this province and then reopen the economy. And I'm really uh, betting on the people of Ontario that we'll grow our economy when we get to the other side of this pandemic and uh, create jobs uh, like we were doing before the pandemic and we most surely will do after. If it were an NDP budget, we would be investing more urgently, not only in PSWs uh, and uh, nurses and other uh, workers uh, for long-term care, but we'd be making sure that they all had decent wages, uh, that they had good working conditions, that they had good benefits, uh, that they had full-time work. Uh, These are all things that that we've been calling for for a very long time, and and Mr. Ford seems to have forgotten uh, that these are the big issues in long-term care and have been for a long time. Joining me now to look at the Ontario budget and the possible repercussions are Robert Benzies. He is the Queen's Park Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star. And Laura Stone is a Queen's Park reporter for the Globe and Mail. Both of you welcome on this very busy day. Uh, I want to start with what stands out for you uh, in this budget. Let's start with you, Robert. Well, I think the the biggest thing was that there's a sense that they're, they're, that a conservative government in Ontario is willing to uh, be awash in red ink for the rest of the decade. I mean, they're really not projecting to balance the books until uh, 2029-30, which is two elections uh, away from now. So uh, I, there are fiscal conservatives in this party who will not be happy about that. Okay, Laura, what stands out for you? Well, I think so as well. The amount, the degree to which this government is spending and for how long. Um, And, you know, they're not in a rush to get those deficits under control. And for someone 
who's known as a fiscal hawk, like Finance Minister Peter Beslan-Falvey, I think that must be very, very difficult for him. I mean, this is the reason why he got into politics. But here we have the government spending billions and billions of dollars on everything from hospitals to long-term care. Uh, and so clearly this government has had to pivot uh, very quickly and very dramatically from what they were elected to do uh, and and really change the the front that they present to the public mm -hmm. as a result of this pandemic. It's interesting because I think we're hearing the echoes of that across the country with the Alberta governments, the Saskatchewan governments, a lot of other governments of conservative stripe and being, they, as you say, use the term pivot, uh, Laura, having to adapt to this pandemic reality. I want to look at something that was watched for a lot in Ontario, but also outside of the borders. And that is uh, people were wondering whether the conservative government of Doug Ford was going to bring in this much requested provincial paid sick leave. Um, the feds offered some money for that. We didn't see it. Robert. Yeah, I mean, that was a surprise in the sense that they had telegraphed a little bit that they might move on it. They were taking a lot of heat, um, but they're not going to uh, uh, supplement the, the federal program, which pays $500 a week, actually $4, $450 after the they take $50 off in taxes. There's been a lot of pressure on the Tories here to uh, bolster that program because, uh, you know, the problem with uh, paid sick leave is that if you don't have it, people are going to work. And if they have COVID-19 and they have to go to work to get paid, you're going to spread COVID-19. Um, but they, the Tories did not move on that. And I think they're going to continue to, to uh, face some political uh, questions from their critics in the Liberals and the New Democrats and the Greens for not acting. I was going to say, um, Laura, what do you make of that? I mean, are they going to pay a, a cost to that? Because that was one of the things that all of our eyes have been open to the need for uh, as generous and as easily accessible as possible uh, sick pay, paid sick leave. I think that the government here erred on the side of the business community. This is not something that small businesses, for instance, uh, would have supported or, or um, most of them. We know that there are some who did, uh, especially if it was the government that would be paying for it. Um, but I think you did see uh, this government make some very pro-business moves in terms of investing in testing and contact tracing, for instance. I think that is really um, called on by the business community in order to reopen uh, the economy uh, and to, to use some of these rapid tests and other initiatives um, uh, to 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 breed confidence in um, in our healthcare capacity and to get the, that economy back open. I'm not surprised that they didn't move on sick pay. They have just resisted it every step of the way. And, and Premier Ford himself has called it double dipping with that federal program. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think that that was um, a, a nod to business owners and business community that they were not going to do that. Okay, one of the things across the country that we've been watching, and obviously and that has been the, 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 the tragedy of long-term care homes and, and the, the costs that we've, uh, we've suffered in terms of losses of Canadians in long-term care homes. There's been pressure from the federal government and pressure for the federal government to intervene. It's not to date. Uh, the Ontario government, the Ford government, says it's addressing the decline and it's, and it's trying to, it's turning around the decline and the crisis in long-term care. Uh, Robert? Well, there is, I mean, they're promising to build 30,000 uh, long-term care beds in publicly uh, controlled long-term care homes because a lot of the problems have they've been in privately owned uh, homes uh, here in Ontario. And I remember about 57% of Ontario's 7,200 deaths have been in long-term care homes from COVID-19. So there's been a lot of pressure on, on that. Peter Bethlenthalvi today reminded uh, the legislature that the previous Liberal government in, in its last term only built a few hundred beds and they're promising 30,000. Uh, but that's still a, a very small amount 
compared to the demand. Mm -hmm. uh, Laura, anything else you're watching for? I mean, I was going to say that both of you said that this is a conservative government, the Ford government, but which has accepted that it's going to be until the end of the decade uh, that they'll be dealing with it before the, the, the budget's balanced. But at the same time, we mm -hmm. heard some people praising the government, saying, well, compared to Alberta and maybe even what we'll see in the federal government, they're at least they have a roadmap that there is a date for when the, the books will be balanced. They do. And I, I suspect that next year before the provincial budget, things are going to look a lot rosier. And if I, if I was yeah. in the government's position, I would want to, um, you know, to, to seem a little less optimistic this okay. year and a little a lot more optimistic next year. Um, but, you know, we, we still have criticisms from the opposition parties that the government is not investing enough in long term uh, programs such as education. We don't see a big boost to spending uh, here. And we've, we've heard the government talk a big game about women in the workforce, uh, the, C, the she session mm -hmm. of this pandemic. But we don't see a lot of of major policy moves in order to address that. Um, there was there were some reports in some quarters suggesting that the government might have moved forward a bit more. Uh, you talk about women in the workforce in the, in the she session. Uh, Robert, there were some suggestions that the government might have been interested in, in boosting child care, uh, in, increasing child care programs. Yeah, Peter Bethlenfalvy's former chief of staff wrote an op-ed in my newspaper earlier this week that said uh, that had people like Laura and me thinking, well, maybe they're going to do something uh, talking about universal child care. Um, of course, there was nothing of the sort in the uh, in the legislature uh, in the or in the budget rather about this. In, in fact, the only thing they really did was uh, um, boost a tax credit for uh, the, the so-called care credit uh, mm -hmm. has been boosted temporarily by 20 percent. So it's a few hundred dollars uh, that parents can apply to or their uh, their child care. Uh, there is a baby bonus check, though, in this. Uh, every every family with a kid uh, up to grade 12 will get four hundred dollars. Uh, and it used to be uh, that was it used to be a two hundred dollar check if, and only until age 12. So they've expanded that program, uh, the baby bonus program for uh, for another year. In terms of social or health spending, did the, the Ford government find anywhere to cut? Well, that depends who you ask. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. NDP is accusing them. Uh, the NDP is accusing them of making cuts because program spending will decline next year. But that includes covid spending. So, uh, you know, I think. The public knows that that, that you know these these kinds of billions of dollars of boosts in COVID type initiatives are not permanent spending, but um, but we also know that this pandemic is not over and that there are going to be lingering effects from it. So um, you know the opposition parties are often criticizing the government for not increasing uh, you know health or education spending in line with inflation. And I think we're going to hear a lot from both the Liberals and the Conservatives um, along those lines that the government is not investing enough in, in long-term infrastructure uh, for those very important programs. Mm -hmm. uh, Robert, in the last 10 seconds, uh, how do you think this will be remembered then? How, this, how will this be weighed out, this budget? Well, I mean, Laura's right. I mean, there's an election in Ontario next year, so they're really going to have to figure out a theme for what that's going to be. I mean, I understand they're spending money like it's just been invented because they have to spend the money because of the pandemic, but they're really going to have to figure out what the narrative they take to the public is in the next year in next year's election. Okay. Well, listen, both of you, I want to thank you for uh, weighing in and helping us out, uh, helping us through this on a very busy day filing. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition of Primetime Politics. From all of us here at CPAC, thanks for watching. I'm Martin Stringer.